Joe? Eric? Where's Jim? Uh, California? Jim, where are you? Oh, no. So I wanted Jim to be here because we're going to do something today that we've never done, and we can't do it without Jim, can we? Well, we can. He helped us write the script. Actually, truth be told, we already recorded this episode. We messed it up big what time. to it, Joe? It was my fault. It was it, my computer's fault. It's gone. So the reason why I wanted Jim here is because I just read this article the other day called Denying Genetics Isn't Shutting Down Racism, It's Fueling It. Uh, it was posted in the New York Magazine, and it was written by the journalist Andrew Sullivan. It starts off saying, last weekend, a rather seismic op-ed appeared in the New York Times, and seismic. it was for a while one of the most popular pieces in the newspaper. Uh, what Sullivan's talking about here is an op-ed written by Harvard geneticist David Reich, um, who is shopping his book around. That's why he's writing these op-eds. And one of the things that he's saying is that there are genetic variations, and those genetic variations in humans, which we know of, do overlap with our idea of race. I really wanted to talk with Jim about that. Do you know what it's time for? It must be time for a Flash episode. Flash! Ah! <laughs> <laughs> All right, so so today, dear listener, we're going to weigh in on this debate, um, in part because some of our listeners have asked us to, and in part because there's no escaping the history and the science involved in this question about whether or not there really are detectable genetic differences between racial groups. So Andrew Sullivan writes this article, but that article wasn't the first shot in this debate, right? What, Where did they start? Why is he writing about this at all? This has actually been going on for over a year, so we're going to give you a quick backstory. So last week, Sam Harris, who you may have heard of, he is the host of the podcast Waking Up, which apparently has over a million listeners. Almost as many as we do. Almost, but not quite. He tweeted the following... Quote, I hope at Ezra Klein is on the case. Scientismic neo-racialist thought crime never sleeps, end quote. So about a year ago, um, Harris produced a podcast episode, which he called Forbidden Knowledge. And in that episode, he interviewed Charles Murray, who is one of the authors of the controversial book that came out in 1994 called The Bell Curve, which we've referenced before on the podcast. And we'll talk about in much more detail in a later episode. Yeah, we will. So this was a two and a half hour interview between Harris and Murray, in which Murray basically made the same assertions that he's been making for years and that he made in the book. Essentially, the idea that there are meaningful racial differences in IQ and intelligence. So when the book came out, this was pretty incendiary. Harris claims in that episode that there, and in later blog posts. and in later blog posts that the science was non-controversial which is patently false in the 1990s right when there were huge protests um and and so there was a lot of backlash against this this was again about a year ago at the time ezra klein who's the editor at large of vox media wrote an article in vox about the sort of faulty nature of this episode um he dismantled the five propositions that are part of Murray's argument about race and intelligence. And this started a sort of heated debate between Harris and Klein. So there were a bunch of emails back and forth. Klein tried to get on Harris's podcast. Harris refused, et cetera, et cetera. The debate eventually died down. But then just last week, this new op-ed by David Reich, who we mentioned at the beginning, um, came out in the New York Times. Now, Reich, to be fair, is not at all related to Charles Murray or his claims about race and intelligence, but what Reich was saying in that op-ed was that he has found in his own research some markers that he believes are in the genome that are related to race. 
specifically to higher risks of prostate cancer. So we're not even talking about intelligence here. But in any case, despite those differences, Harris picked up on the commonalities in his argument and Murray's argument about there being some sort of genetic reality to race. And he shot that kind of snarky tweet at Ezra Klein. And this reignited the entire debate. Ezra Klein then responded, not with a tweet, but with an over 6,000-word response on Vox. And actually, it was a pretty sophisticated response. We liked a lot of the things that it said. However, one of the reasons why Klein is getting so much pushback from the community that surrounds Harris isn't just because of the claims that Klein makes. And it's not just because he's disputing with Harris. It's because Ezra Klein is a journalist. He's not a scientist. Whereas Sam Harris does have a background in neuroscience and has many people that listen to his podcast who do have backgrounds in science. So we thought it was high time for people that do have a background in this kind of stuff to weigh in. Like us. Like us. Principally Jim, who's not even here. But us. (laughs) In his 6,000 word diatribe, Klein focuses primarily on history and on oppression and makes the point that we can't really control statistically, even in genetic studies, for things like systematic racism, which I think is fair, but he's missing a key piece of information that Harris also misses, and even Murray misses, which is uh, that a human population is different than a human race. And so in this episode, we're going to unpack what that means. Now, just to be clear, we have already talked about this concept on earlier episodes, but we want to emphasize this again on today's Flash episode. Human populations aren't races. Right. This is something that our friend Joe Graves, who was on the podcast a few weeks ago, who is a population geneticist, has been saying for years. So biology defines a population as a group of individuals of a single species who live in the same place at the same time and reproduce with each other. So as you can probably imagine, it would be hard to identify the boundaries of a population in a species like humans that have been moving around for millennia and mating with each other very enthusiastically. But the basic idea is that critters are a lot more likely to mate with other critters from their own population than they are from another population. Okay, so that is a population. That's not the same as race. But wouldn't population and race overlap? Because wouldn't you end up mostly breeding with people that look like you? So take this example. Have you ever seen a person from the Andaman Islands, which is a small group of islands off the eastern coast of India? I have not. Okay. How about a person from South Sudan, which is, of course, in sub-Saharan Africa? Probably, maybe. Yes. So if you saw those two people in the United States right now, particularly if you saw them side by side, you would say they look similar. You'd probably identify them as African-American or black because people in both of those places have very dark skin, noses with relatively low bridges, and tightly curled dark hair. But remember our definition of a population. These two people are from entirely different populations in entirely different parts of the world. And so their genes are going to vary from one another just as much as their genes might vary compared to someone from a third population, say a light-skinned person from Norway. Why? Because they're all from different populations, even if some of them fit into the same racial group. Wait a second. Surely two people who look like each other, well, they have to be more genetically similar to each other than they would be to, I don't know, the light-skinned Norwegian dude, right? So it turns out, no. The genes that make a person's skin light or dark or determine nose shape or hair color and hair texture, there are a whole bunch of these. And so two entirely different genotypes can lead to dark skin that looks 
to the untrained eye just the same. So, for instance, the Andaman Islander and the South Sudanese person may have entirely different genetic structures that lead to their similar-looking dark skin. Just because the Andaman Islander and the South Sudanese person share those physical features in common doesn't actually guarantee that there is a similar underlying genetic code beneath those shared features. And even more importantly, even if there was, it wouldn't tell you anything at all about genes that may contribute to behavior, like preference for dancing or playing chess or even taking an IQ test. You hear that, Murray? Okay, so here's something Jim told me when I began to learn about teaching this topic, human variation, race, and biology. And I swear I had to hear it at least 20 times before I really began to understand its implications. There's actually more genetic variation within racial groups than there is between racial groups. You have to explain what that means. Okay. We've said it before, but but it bears repeating, right? There is more genetic variation within racial groups than there is between them. And it turns out there's way more in humans than there are, say, even in our closest relatives, chimpanzees. So Ezra Klein, if you are listening, and we hope you are. We really do. This is the crux of your argument. Well, and let me give another little thought experiment that kind of drives this home. So the U.S. Census, for so long as it continues to exist in its present form, currently it identifies five distinct racial groups. Those would be African-American, white, Asian, Native Hawaiian, or Pacific Islander, and then Native Americans. Now, if races were populations, that would mean that there are five major groups of humans in the entire United States who are more genetically similar to each other than they are to people from any of the other five groups, right? Right. Okay, so if you took all the African-Americans in the United States and you sequenced their full genomes, and if you took all the people that we consider white in the United States and sequenced their full genomes, you would expect African-Americans to be more similar to each other than they are to any of the white people, and vice versa. And yet, that is not the case. In fact, we see more variability within the African-American group alone than we do between African-Americans and the white people. Right. And this is because, again, racial categories like African-Americans stick people with very different heritages, like the Sudanese guy and the Andaman Islander, into the same category. And when people make this argument, they often use African-Americans as the exemplar group, but it, it holds for all racial groups. We know because people actually have done the genetic sequencing, and this is what they've found. And that, my dear listeners, is why it's absolutely crucial to understand the difference between a population and a race. When I first heard about this, I thought maybe it was a technicality. It's not, it turns out. Having a basic understanding of what constitutes a human population totally takes the wind out of ideas like Murray's that we can map any meaningful genetic difference onto race because it turns out that race doesn't actually reflect human genetic variation. And that's really our big take-home point for the day, but we want to return for a few minutes to the arguments that David Reich, who's the only geneticist in the bunch, made in that New York Times op-ed. Reich refers to the stuff we've just talked about as a form of orthodoxy that he fears is causing geneticists and anthropologists, which are the two groups of scholars most likely to be grappling with these issues, to turn a blind eye to any study that might show a genetic difference between racial groups. Reich himself acknowledges the social nature of our racial categories when he says this. But it's weird. He tries to have it both ways. He tries to say, on the one hand, race is socially constructed, which we would agree with. 
But then on the other side of his mouth, he says there are hard genetic differences between racial groups. And he even gives a few examples. The first he uses is his own work, which reports a genetically based risk factor for prostate cancer among people who self-identify as African-Americans. And then the second is research conducted by other people, including a team that includes economist Daniel Benjamin on people of European ancestry, again, self-reported, looking to see if genetic variation appeared between people of different education levels. Despite the fact that Reich is much more measured in his arguments and has a lot more training in genetics than most of the other thinkers we've been talking about today, he still falls prey to the same logical error, a failure to grasp the difference between populations and races. And in fact, just a few days ago on March 30th, a group of 67 health scientists, geneticists, and anthropologists, including our friend Joseph Graves, Yay. Yay, published an open letter in BuzzFeed that they called How Not to Talk About Race and Genetics, and it was responding to this debate. There they explain why Reich's finding that there is a genetic risk factor for prostate cancer among African Americans does not prove the validity of African American as a biological race category. Can you read what they say there? <clears throat> These people may have a higher frequency of a version of a particular gene that is linked to a higher risk of prostate cancer, but... Lots of people not from West Africa also have the same gene. We don't call these other people a race, nor do we say their race is relevant to their condition. Finding a high prevalence of a particular genetic variant in a group does not make that group a race, end quote. Right. So when, when we put it this way, it seems circular. We think certain traits are racially defined because we've decided ahead of time that those are racial traits. Another way they explain this in the 67-authored article is to analogize um, this to a genetic test of differences between Boston Red Sox fans and New York Yankees fans. Now we know that humans are 99.5% genetically identical, which in a genome like ours that has 3 billion base pairs means that any one individual will differ by as much as 15 million base pairs from any other. Given the random variation that occurs between individuals in these 15 million sites, you might find a significant genetic difference between Red Sox fans and Yankees fans. And we would hope that that would not make us conclude that Yankees fans and Red Sox fans are separate races of people, but I actually know plenty of people who would conclude that they are separate races. But of course, they're just joking because we already know that being a Red Sox fan or a Yankees fan has nothing to do with biology, so we wouldn't even use biology to try to justify some difference between them in the first place. So, in my opinion, the most powerful line of the 67 authored piece is this, quote, we need to recognize that meaningful patterns of genetic and biological variation exist in our species that are not racial. And I like that because it allows for us to investigate human difference, but to do so in a way that doesn't pigeonhole people into these sort of socially constructed racial categories. People who really understand both the biological and social sides of human racial categories are not denying that humans differ from one another. And that's an important point because both Harris and Reich suggest that maybe they are denying that there are any meaningful differences. But what they're really doing is looking at the evidence and concluding that despite several decades and several billion dollars worth of genetics research, we still have not found a reliable genetic signal that maps onto human races. That's primarily because the biological concept of race doesn't actually capture the variation that exists between individuals and populations. Remember, races are not populations. Populations aren't races. Yeah. This is what Sherry Washburn emphasized about 70 years ago 
And importantly, that observation isn't some rigorously enforced orthodoxy as Reich sort of worries it might be in his op-ed. There's no scientific thought police, nor is it politically motivated claptrap by a bunch of truth-denying, left-leaning fake news scientists, as Harris and even Murray to some extent suggest. There's one other important piece of scientific evidence that none of the sides in this debate have really considered and that we think we should add into this discussion. In Ezra Klein's most recent essay, that's the the giant one, the 6200-word one that is on Vox, he points out that the legacy of slavery and Jim Crow into the well into the 20th century and then the continued inequality into the 21st century has created such an intense set of disadvantages for African Americans that it might actually be reflected in intelligence quotient scores, not because of actual differences in intelligence, but because things like illness and lack of education really do have a profound impact on test performance. He even cites the late anthropologist John Uzo Ogbu, who found evidence that this was the case among oppressed groups inside and outside of the United States. Though he didn't say so, Klein could have been even more biologically onto something than he knew that would support his point. Right. Even Reich doesn't go into the fact that we're now learning that just because a gene appears in a person's genome doesn't mean it actually gets expressed. The field of epigenetics, which has only come into its own in the last 20 years or so, well, though Eric will argue with me about this till we're both blue in the face. And I wrote a whole book about the history of it. Uh, this field is all about exploring how genes sort of get turned on and off all the time by environmental impacts as well as sort of interpersonal experiences, including things like war and famine and oppression. Actually, can you give us one of the best examples, the Dutch winter? Yeah, the Dutch hunger winter. So during World War II, there was a winter, whose year I cannot remember, where the Dutch um, experienced this really intense and really quick famine. And there have been decades of studies done following up on those individuals as well as their offspring. And what they found is that there are signatures left in the genome from epigenetic modification that took place during that hunger winter that shape metabolic traits of generations to come. So even if you're the child or the grandchild of someone who experienced the Dutch hunger winter, you may be more likely to develop cardiovascular disease or type 2 diabetes as an adult than someone who is not the offspring of someone who went through that trauma. So really intense environmental effects can show up in the genome of people for multiple generations, but not necessarily in the C's, T's, G's, and A's. In fact, what happens is a process called methylation that takes place not on the rungs of the DNA, but on the struts that the rungs are attached to, but it still is passed on. Right. So that's epigenetics. And what it's showing us more than anything else is that just because something shows up in a person's genetic code is no guarantee that it'll actually be expressed in their body. And vice versa. Things can appear phenotypically to people's bodies that don't necessarily seem to appear in the genotype in the way that we currently sequence people's genomes. This is another important piece of scientific evidence that no one in this debate is really queuing into. Totally. Is that it? I guess that's it. This has been our first Flash episode. Flash! That was better than mine. You sound like <laughs> more like Freddie Mercury. <laughs> anyway, thanks so much for listening. I'm Eric, the historian of science. I'm Joe, the cultural anthropologist. And though Jim is not here, we wish him a safe trip in California, and we will see him again soon. 